Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Morning, everyone. I hope you're having a fabulous week. Today on the podcast, Wikipedia, we are talking ketogenic diets, continuous glucose monitoring, and a whole bunch of other geeky science stuff with my mates, Dr. Cliff Harvey. He's now probably a show regular and his episodes get a heap of traction, so I know that you guys really dig what he has to say. But Cliff and I are joined by Dr. Dan Plews. Now, Dan will be no stranger to anyone who is interested in distance triathlon, in any sort of endurance sport or actually anyone who is interested in sailing because he was the performance specialist over for Team New Zealand who took out America's Cup earlier this year and this is such a cool conversation so let me introduce Dan for those of you who don't know him he is an exercise physiologist who has had his PhD for a number of years now and he has over 35 peer-reviewed publications Not only that, he's worked closely with athletes who have won more than 25 world and Olympic titles. Dan's a coach. He's coached three pro Ironman athletes to sub eight hours, including Terenzo Bazzoni, Jan Van Berkel, and Tim Van Berkel. And he's a coach to age groupers who are consistently hitting PBs in Ironman and 70.3 events. And Dan is, unsurprisingly, also an athlete himself and an incredible athlete. He is the 2018 Ironman Age Group World Championship course winner, record holder, in 8 hours, 24 minutes, 36 seconds, which is an astoundingly fast time at Kona. And he is also the 2018 Ironman Age Group Topor course record holder in 8.35, which again is just so unbelievable considering he then went in the same year over 10 minutes faster at Kona which is phenomenal. Dan has also built a huge community behind him with Enduro IQ. He's the founder of Enduro IQ which brings education to athletes and coaches and anyone interested in long distance triathlon Enduro IQ is a company that was built in the hope of sharing with athletes and coaches how to land in the middle of enjoyment, health and performance and you really get some amazing information from this course and subsequent to the course Dan has also set up the Endura IQ training squad which gives athletes access to a training hub with proven training plans and workouts adjustable to their own training and performance goals. So that is Dan, he's got so many strings to his bow and we just touch on a snippet of what he's interested in in today's show. And it really is just a conversation with three geeks. I must say that I am the least smart of all three of us. And just to remind you about Cliff Harvey, he is a nutritionist, author, life and purpose coach and researcher that is based here in Auckland, New Zealand. In over two decades of practice, Dr. Cliff Harvey has helped thousands of people to achieve their goals from those who are chronically and acutely unwell through to elite level athletes and elite attitude 
business people and entrepreneurs. Cliff is the brains and founder behind Holistic Performance Institute, which provides people with certificates and education in and around sports nutrition, nutrition and health coaching. And I have a course with Cliff over on Holistic Performance Institute, all related to female nutrition. You can catch Cliff at cliffharvey.com and you can contact Dan via enduraiq.com that is e-n-d-u-r-e-i-q.com so I hope that you enjoy this pretty geeky conversation that I have with Cliff and Dan and we're on kia ora Cliff Dan I feel like I'm kind of like in the room with two of the gurus in New Zealand all about keto and exercise and just well gurus and geeks actually anyway well, was, how are you I was gonna say the same thing <laughs> should I, we just turn this into the same thing <laughs> we should just turn this into some kind of mutual appreciation session should we for sure for sure it's pretty much there now already. I'm t- it is right so what I just want to do um is we thought we'd get together and just have a bit of a yarn about Dan your continuous glucose monitoring experiment because you know I'm really interested for you to um, elucidate more and some of those details that you've been sharing on your Instagram posts and so Cliff and I were going to catch up but Cliff is such a brainiac in and around the keto and in and around um, pretty much anything diet related that I just knew that he'd be super interested to come on in and, and give some thoughts potentially around some things as well and I'll just probably just sit here and listen yeah right like as if I don't talk but <laughs> one of the first things I want to ask you Dan because we were just talking about the black currant supplement because I had mentioned that I've um, had a chat to Fleur Cushman and she's the she's basically one of the the brains behind currants as a supplement and she's based in London and there's a lot of really good research out there to show its potential benefits and I mentioned that I was using it but haven't actually noticed too much um, difference to date but you in the lab have noticed some changes in some people yeah well we noticed like an in not not many people we're just kind of trialing it within a few of the students when we got sent a few of the the, the black currants and yeah we noticed that at least in in people who had poor fat oxidation it uh, really bumped up the fat oxidation when testing the lab using the metabolic cart so uh, yeah, well, that's pretty. We thought that was pretty interesting. Like, but like I said to you just before, you know, with all these kind of ergogenic aids, so to speak, or supplements, you just generally see more of a boost when it comes to when people who are either older or not as highly tuned or not as not as athletic. You know, but even with like beetroot juice, you know, you'll see you'll see very similar things. I know that there's been some great research done in like economy of walking in elderly people when they use beetroot juice but look as you kind of go up the chain and they get um and athletes get better and better and the physiology is a little bit better it's harder to make make a difference so the types of changes and stuff that you might expect to or that you saw are they meaningful changes you know like because there is there is one thing to for it to be you know statistically significant but another thing to actually you know make a real difference yeah, I mean, statistically, no, because we didn't we didn't do it in a big cohort of people, right? But yeah. uh, you know, the, the thing is, it's that that's a that's a problem with sports science and interventions in general, like especially when it comes to nutrition. The you know the individual variation is just so massive that you can typically end up with a null finding, even though often 
in one person that can be massive improvement and a massive difference, but in another person there's a negative improvement, then in a few people there's not. So, you know, the individual variation is something to be accounted for. But in this particular person, you know, what, what you can do in that particular instance is you can say, okay, what's the day-to-day -day variation in fat oxidation? What's the day-to-day -day variation in, or the technical error of measure on the machinery that we're using it in? And when you're looking at individuals, that's when you can actually look at some, you can account that as meaningful change because if it's without, if it's outside the general noise of measure on a day-to-day -day basis, you can assume that it could be something for sure. And I know this changing fat oxidation was certainly not a normal day-to-day -day change that we would see. Mm. I mean, I, I, li I liken it to um, submaximal heart rate. So submaximal heart rate, if you and me, we, we cycle on a ergometer at 200 watts and we do it for a week, we're probably typically going to see around a six to seven beat day-to-day -day variation. So, you know, if, if we're seeing suddenly we have an intervention and it's a 15 beat difference, then you can be pretty sure that that intervention is likely doing something on an individual level at least. So interesting, eh? And um, we mentioned beetroot as well. Cliff, weren't you involved in some beetroot trials? Not really, only, only no? by virtue of being good mates with Joe McQuillan. Oh, there um, you go. Sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. Around while he was doing his stuff and, and we obviously started using it with a lot of our athletes um, as, you know, Joey was doing his research and so uh, we supply beets to a lot of professional sports teams and a lot of professional athletes but, you know, that that's really my the extent of my uh, interaction with beets is just to, to pass them on to people. Did it, didn't Joe find that, because um, he did it in pretty high level cyclists, right, and it, he, I think one of his findings was that it potentially was even detrimental to the elite, the more elite cyclists because of they've already got good vasodilation and the the beach reduce only exemplifies that and then there's potential of a loss of systemic circulation because you're almost having a bit of leaky valve so to, so it's for want of a better word so um that's what i think he found that's one of his findings from memory is that right i i believe so um and, and i i think that they weren't really sure whether that was just a, a sort of muddy finding or whether there was you know a potential negative yeah, i think right, that was okay. a function of I think it's probably a function of what you're saying as well and that, you know, you're looking at elite athletes with very small cohorts and so you're going to be seeing pretty skinny effects anyway and, you know, that there can be detriment or decrement, I should say, seen in any study, uh, whether it results from the supplement or not, you, you couldn't be 100% sure. It's an interesting tangent to explore though because I think most of the people who are using beats are pretty high level athletes and so, you yeah, know, yeah maybe there is a greater application for gen pop and not just for performance but for health you know for maybe cognition maybe for blood pressure modulation um and so there, there might be a lesser application for those elite level athletes however um there might be a profound placebo effect for some of them as well well yeah we love we love a good placebo effect for sure hey mate it's quite, I'll, I'll it's take quite a hard to effect. blunt the um taste of that <laughs> yeah of course you would yeah Sure. Yeah. Do you know, I was always back in my real zealous days. I mean, I'm still a zealot, but I'm just slightly less so now. I was always looking at those beat it shots and going, well, there's about 16 grams of sugar in that. So if you give that to an athlete, is that going to impact negatively on fat oxidation? Is it going to change their, yeah, change their ability to switch between fuel substrates or like really tap into, um, tap into fat? But was I just a bit zealous thinking about like that with those beat shots? It's a good question because I think, you know, I would say that there, there would be an effect if you're taking it immediately before 
exercise. I mean, if you have enough time to wash out and, you know, get back to baseline, um, whether 16 odd grams is enough to really impact that, I think, you know, Dan would be the one to answer that question. Uh, what, what have you seen in your research, Dan, in terms of taking carbohydrate immediately before? Yeah, so I mean that is actually it's quite a small amount, really. I don't, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure you would see too much in that. Like we, we, like my PhD student Jeff Rothschild, he's actually doing this as his very topic. We just, he just finished. We're just actually looking to publish a paper where he looked at um, fat oxidation rates fasted, fat oxidation rates with carbohydrate, and that carb. I can't remember the exact amount. So I think it was it was a reasonable amount. You're talking like 60, 70, 70 grams. Mm. Um, but and it was like white bread and jam, so you know you couldn't get much Delicious. more, no, no, <laughs> much more sugary than that. And yeah. then um, and then it was protein and protein and fat. And um, yeah, you you definitely you definitely saw a reduction in fat oxidation when you took the when you took the the sugary carbs before. But again, it's a little bit a little bit more. But you would expect. I mean, if it's a simple sugar, you're going to have an insulin spike. That's going to affect your fat oxidation fat oxidation so you would expect a little bit of difference yeah so mm. what we saw was that fat oxidation was the highest fasted protein and fat um which was like it was basically a whey protein and we just um added some peanut butter to so it was calorie equaling number of calories um as a protein and fat and then this jam and jam and bud, jam and kind of white bread yeah so um but um the protein and fat the protein and fat was very close in fat metabolism to um fasted was it just looking at fat oxidation? Was it looking at any performance indicators yeah. or anything, Dan? Yes. Yeah. So we did that as well. So the actual test itself was you basically, you did four or five minute stages and it was, that was just to look at the submaximal values where we looked at the fat oxidation. You then had a little bit of a rest and then you did um, six by three minutes. The first three were at your kind of your threshold, anaerobic threshold power. And then the next three were maximal as as much work as you could do over those intervals and there was no difference in performance so no matter mm. no matter what and what was really interesting is that you know as soon as like at the lower levels when you didn't really need to you upped your fat oxidation in a fasted state but even in the fasted state when you were required to tap into carbohydrate oxidation it would be equal to the carbohydrate fed group so there's mm. always carbohydrates that even in a fasted state, you can just tap into some, you know, those endogenous stores and then you're producing that exact same, same work. So, which for me, I mean, we're just writing this paper at the moment and, you know, we were going through it and I said, I said to Jeff, I'm like, one of the main things that you need to include in this is that um, from like an athlete perspective with reds and all that kind of thing, it's really beneficial because athletes that can be quite obsessed with increasing their fat oxidation. So they do a lot of fasted training. They don't eat before. They then are in negative energy balance the rest of the day. They can't often catch that up. But at least this is something to say, hey, you know, you can have fat and protein just before you exercise and it's not really going to implicate, have any implications on your fat oxidation. So don't worry about that so much. Have some food, do your exercise and you, you'll, be, you'll be pretty sweet. Yeah, and you know, um, it was Jeff's paper that did a review of that area that really kind of solidified for me that of those points that you were just talking about. So as you know, his paper that he was published, he'd published late last year that looked at what is the impact of protein before exercise or what is the impact of, of carbs before exercise. And it appeared that that was the case, that potentially fat oxidation was not going to be impaired with protein. So that yeah. changed my recommendations to the athletes that I work with in my online coaching system as yeah. well. And 
And I feel like as coaches in that nutrition space, but also obviously with athletes, if nutrition or otherwise, it's, there's been so much more of a focus now on reds and on mm. that energy availability. And it's quite good to be able to come at it from that point of, well, yes, fat oxidation is important, but you've got choices outside of just your white bread and jam that can help. Yeah. But listen to this though, what was really interesting about this study, because I was a subject in the study as well, so I got to indulge in a bit of white bread and jam, for, <laughs> which, is, which is a once in a while. But what, was, what, what I found interesting, one of the take-homes from a personal perspective was obviously I'm pretty fat adapted. And like you, you ate the white bread and you had the jam, it massively impl- had implications on your fat oxidation. But my fat oxidation was still higher than any other subjects. And there were 16 or 17 subjects it was still higher than anyone's, even when I had white bread and jam, because it was, it was still so robust to those macronutrients. Yeah, so I thought that was quite a cool little, I mean, end of one, but I, you know, that, I thought that was quite exciting. So. Yeah. How long have you been keto for, well, how long have you been dabbling in low carb and had been in keto? And, and so where are you at now with all of that stuff, Dan? Yeah, so, so since 2012, and I'm still, I'm still pretty low carb. Yeah. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, you, know, you, you, you said before you, you feel that, you know, wait back at you then where you were a bit of a zealot and, and I'm definitely way more open now to different methods and ways, but, um, I still firmly believe that a lower carbohydrate diet for specifically long distance triathlon, at least, which is what I'm mostly interested in is, is absolute paramount, particularly if you're newer to the sport. So another, uh, I'm just talking too much now, but, um, but another thing that we're looking at at AUT University, we're looking at some data at the moment, is what is influencing fat oxidation the most. So obviously like VO2 max we know has strong, strong correlation with fat oxidation rates because there's more, more generally VO2 max, more type one fibers, more mitochondria in the muscle cell, more ability to have beta oxidation and fat, fat metabolism. Um, but what we're finding is better than that is actually training age. So the longer you have been doing training for, specifically endurance training, generally the better your fat oxidation. So which is why I think we see a lot of the pros and elites who typically don't have to worry too much about what they're eating. But I think if you're newer to the sport and you've not done um, particularly Ironman or ultra sports or a long time, not having some um, idea of or intervention to improve your fat oxidation is not going to be that advantageous for you when in a sport which requires you to have a decent fat oxidation. So that's another little interesting thing we've found for pull from some of the data. Yeah, sure. And now, Dan, like in the textbooks, I believe that the kind of maximum fat oxidation went up to say one gram a minute or something. And then that was blown out of the water when the faster study was published to show that rates of fat oxidation like well exceeded that. What's your fat oxidation rate? Uh, 1.4 is my max. Yeah, 1.4 grams per minute. Yeah, right. but that's not that. That's not in ketosis either. So mm. you can always like if I didn't if I got if I got deliberately into ketosis, for example, you'd expect that to be a little bit high because it does upregulate your fat oxidation. But that's just um, that's just first thing in the morning having you know having a normal kind of food the night before. So um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the fastest study it showed 1.7, 1.8 grams per minute. Oh, interesting. Um, I, think that, I think that was um, up at that kind of level. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think uh, Zach Bitter, who was in that study, who's um, a colleague of mine at S-Fuels, um, I think he was like 1. 1.6, 1. 1.7. 
And there he, you go. He holds the 100 mile world record. So, yeah, not too shabby. <laughs> no, not too shabby. And he's just training now to run from California to San Fran, actually. Yeah, yeah. Madness. Crazy. I know. What about you, Cliff? Are you, are you doing any marathon running across California anytime soon? <laughs> I was thinking about fat oxidation as you're sitting there drinking your beer, actually. Like, oh, I wonder if Cliff is in ketosis right now. Yeah, nothing, no, yeah, nothing I, wrong with the beer. No. I, have, I have a good low-carb blonde many an evening. I get in my 7,500 steps a day. Um, that's, that's, that's basically the extent of my endurance. But no, I think this is, you know, all of these studies that come out showing, you know, the influence of, what we can do dietary wise on fat oxidation and and then the functional outcomes I think are really important because you know in this study that you are involved with Dan mm. the you know the, the increase in fat oxidation is obviously an important aspect the mitigation of any down regulation of that um, by, by having protein and, and fat as compared to carbohydrate is another important sort of tangent and it sort of plays into this whole idea that we really need to be looking at outcomes-focused nutrition, right? Because if you're in a relatively short event or you're in a relatively short training session, we can draw quite a lot of conclusions from this. You know, number one is something that's consistent with the existing research is that you don't need to have carbs before training or events necessarily. Uh, you may need to have carbohydrate before or during events if they're incredibly long. But also, you know, as you mentioned, the the questions around energy deficiency are, are pretty big nowadays. And I see it a lot in even general population clients. You know, see a huge amount nowadays who are consistently mm. undereating, and that's probably the, the primary thing we need to work on for, you know, for, for gut health, for IBS, for anxiety, depression, all these various things. And so there's, like I say, there's different outcomes that can come out of looking at studies or the body of work because of that. So, for example, if you are consistently underfueled, mm. it might be a really good idea to have some protein and fat before training. Maybe even some after training. Maybe some protein and carbs after training. You know, maybe consider if you're consistently under eating, adding some carbs back in. On the other hand, if you're consistently overfueling, there's a really good uh, argument there to not have to load up before training, you know, to, to use other strategies like fasting or low-carb, keto, whatever it happens to be, to reduce that auto-regulated energy intake. So I think that's one of the most exciting, somewhat complex, but one of the most exciting aspects to come out of all of this research, which is now sort of accumulating, is that we can get great results from very different dietary strategies yeah that that um you know i listened to you a few times now cliff and you know that that targeted nutrition approach is something that you know i think it's just such a, a strong th case that people just seem to just not think about and it's like well obviously if, you, if, if you're if you're training to build a load of muscle and you're and you know you, you don't necessarily need to be restricting your carbohydrates so it's just like yeah exactly big big muscles like you you don't you know you need a bit in fact you need a bit of insulin you know you need because mm. that help promotes growth but if that's not your your concern it's like what what are you trying to achieve you know um so yeah it's um, some some exciting things but um just on the on the fasting thing so last week i did um i did this thing with sip kitchen just on apollo drive here in, in auckland where we're testing uh it's like we call it my 800 which is 800 calories a day 
for three days. And uh, yeah, it's amazing what you can actually do with low calories because I was doing three to 4,000 calories a day on 800 calories of fuel and I was feeling pretty, pretty good on it really. Yeah, it was good. Do you reckon, Dan, is there anything to do with some uptick in your stress response and catecholamines from the rapid drop in calories? It could be. Because often people be, say, but... you know, going into ketosis and stuff or yeah, dropping yeah, your calories, well, going low carb. So it was a really, it, I actually quite enjoyed the process. It was really a lot of, I, I, I learned a lot from it because I've done a similar thing before with the uh, fasting mimicking diet, the Dr. Volta Longo one. Mm. And obviously that's like zero protein. So with this one, it was mm. it's three meals a day, 16 grams of protein per meal. And I found it like so much easier. Same amount of calories, 800 calories, so much easier. I could train so much more easily on it as well. And what was remarkable was my HRV went so high my resting heart rate mm. was super low. Um, and I, I wonder if it's partly metabolic rate because I think my metabolic rate was like, oh, hang on a minute, you're, you're a bit low on the old calories here. You're going to have to um, drop, drop, your, um, drop your metabolic rate a little bit. I mean, I, I wear an Apple Watch and I kept, if I was sat around for too long, I'd go, warning, your heart rate has been <laughs> below 40 for the past 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, <laughs> Are you alive? <laughs> Are you alive? Yeah. Um, but I found it, I found it really good. I, I definitely do it again. I mean, it's, I have a few questions around it, you know, like with the fasting mimicking and any fasting, you know, is it, is it giving the same benefits in um, cellular cleansing or autophagy and all that kind of, kind of stuff? But I think, you know, it's an interesting one because on one side, you're, you know, the, the fasting mimicking is really designed to be quite catabolic. So you're adding the protein, it's not going to be as catabolic. But then at the same time, I'm doing exercise. So that's, you know, that's reduced, that's being a bit more catabolic. And also another thing is that, you know, fasting boosts your NAD. Um, mm. And with the fasting making diet, there's other things that you can't do that would boost your NAD. So you can't do decent exercise. It's even difficult to get in like, like in a sauna or something. So, you know, maybe, maybe this approach where you can do things on top of it might overall be more beneficial so um but i definitely i'm definitely going to do it again because i just as a general reset and also a psychological i like it from the psychology point of view where i'm like okay i'm just not gonna eat as much you like to suffer yeah yeah i guess it's a bit of that (laughs) no 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 yeah Um, it's interesting yeah i was just gonna say i'd love to hear what your thoughts both of your thoughts are on that because you you're the more nutrition gurus than me i was just um giving it a whirl Mm. well I am. Um, so I listened to a podcast last year and it was Dom D'Agostino was chatting to um, Bob off uh, Peter Atiyah's podcast and he didn't ask me anything all about keto. And, and Dom talked through a keto longevity approach that was very similar to Volta Longo, but like the one that you've just described, mm. it's sort of based on restricting calories by 50% of your usual, uh, doing it for five days eating it with a time-restricted window, upping the protein slightly, but the protein sources being kind of salmon, basically, and white fish. So so not red meat, not um, chicken or anything like that, no dairy involved either. And the premise of it was, you know, if you can get that glucose to ketone ratio of between one and two, then that's going to elicit a lot of the benefits that Volta Longo is purporting to get 
in the um with his longevity diet but just as you said dan with a lot less catabolism and so dom kind of described this out and i thought god that sounds really interesting so then i went home and i designed the keto longevity diet which i sell on my website fyi not the food but the diet plan itself but basically just based on based on that because i felt thought yeah exactly i thought well there's a product just waiting to be uh developed um and sip kitchen has obviously brought that to life but yeah so is that is that an 800 calorie was that 800 calories per day was it just half your normal 50 half your normal yeah, half your normal. And so just what I did, I'm like, well, you know, most people are probably going to like, there's just different levels and you can't really cater to everyone. But I'm like, right, well, I'll do level one at 750 calories. I'll do level two at 1000 and level three at 1250. Yeah, just right, okay. for, like, so, so all low, obviously, yeah. and well below probably what both of you would actually eat in a day. But like you, I'm not hundred percent sold on the idea that from a longevity perspective you need to have an incredibly low protein intake and this is not because I'm a brainiac it's because the other brainiacs that I listen to are also not sold on it like Stu yeah. Phillips mm-hmm. and Don Lehman yeah. and and yeah. as, as I understand they're kind of putting together a rebuttal on that protein piece yeah I think that was my major my major reason for thinking actually Dom's got a really good point and also he is a brainiac Anyway, they're my thoughts. Sounds great. Mm. No, no, it was really good. And um, and yeah, the what well, I was actually doing it like you des- like you described almost is that because I I was I always get concerned about not sleeping. So I was basically I was not eating until twelve or one, and then I would have my breakfast, and then I would eat my lunch at five, and then my dinner at seven. And so mm. I kind of back ended a little bit uh, just so I could sleep that that little much b- bit better. But I was doing like two hours of training a day, so. I mean, on my on my whoop device it kind of gives me a very rough estimate of calories per day and it was around you know around 3000 calories to 4000 calories a day so hmm. i was definitely in deficit i lost two and a half kilos in three days so <laughs> yeah and um yeah. Cliff, what about you what are your thoughts on the whole fasting mimicking i, I guess they're broadly in line with with you guys i think that if if people are doing sort of fasting mimicking diets, then the, the priority I would say is to get that protein intake in there to reduce the catabolism because that's really the the, the outcome of protein, oh, sorry, a, a fasting mimicking diet, right, is that you want to get the benefits of fasting without the same degree of, say, muscle catabolism. And so it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I think the, the realm of fasting, though, is so... It's so convoluted, you know, it's so complex because there are a lot of outcomes we're looking for and a lot of people are are framing it in a diet-only perspective. And obviously, you know, Dan mentioned that there's a lot of other things that encourage, say, uh, autophagy, autophagy, whatever you want to call it, wherever you studied, uh, including certain nutrients, you know, micronutrients, including uh you know, effective sleep, including particularly exercise and the intensity of exercise. So where we have a lifestyle strategy that is conducive to proper modulation of autophagy, then perhaps some of the benefits of fasting might be somewhat mitigated as well. Similarly to how we were talking about before, certain supplements may not be as effective for the elite athlete. Maybe some of these strategies are actually less effective for those who have broadly what we'd consider a healthy diet and lifestyle strategies. Um, but there's more to it as well because, you know, fasting is not restricted obviously to the, the physiological benefits. 
uh, that there are benefits for releasing some of our patterns, our behavioral patterns. You know, I think fasting is a really good way to to reassess our attachment to food and the way we eat and the particular foods we eat. So there are, you know, psychological and psychosocial benefits. But all of that considered, I would always go back to the research as well and say that with a few exceptions, in particular physiological measures, most of the benefits from fasting do come down to autoregulation of energy over time. And so I think that's that's a really important consideration because I'm a big fan of fasting because of its mm. compounded benefits. Uh, but I also think that where people elevate fasting to be a dogma, then it can become negative if that person is, becomes habituated to fasting and maybe they're in an underfueled state. And I see that a lot now. I see that, I've seen that with probably six clients in the last two weeks is that they they fast because of all the purported benefits but when we look at their energy intake they're simply not eating enough and it's difficult for them at their meals to eat more so the strategy where we often use is to add a meal right and they freak out often because they think well but i'm not fasting anymore it's like well but that doesn't matter because the main benefits are to help you auto-regulate your energy intake so if the easiest strategy to help you eat more from a compendium of healthy food, if the, the easiest way to do that is to add a meal, add a meal. You know, it's not rocket science. We need to look at these diet and lifestyle levers that help us to over time have an appropriate energy balance that is also micronutrient replete. I often think, you know, I love exercise and I love coffee. I can't imagine there's ever a time where I'm not in autophagy like I think I just must go around in some kind of autophagous state most of the time um, I like that adjective <laughs> thank you I quite like it too we need to remember that uh, you know auto autophagy is not an on-off switch mm. and you know you get that question all the time I'm sure you guys get it like how long do I need to fast to switch on autophagy and it's kind of like well if you didn't ever have autophagy and apoptosis and um, mitophagy and those things happening, you'd be dead, right? It's, it's happening. It may not be adequately modulated for optimum health and longevity. So what can we do to shift that balance so we've got the, the sort of correct balance of catabolic and anabolic processes in the body, which is really what we're talking about. We don't have in the modern psychosocial environment the correct balance often of that anabolic versus catabolic you know and that even comes not just from what we're doing we, we don't move residually enough we don't often have a, a good balance of that with higher intensity activity uh, we don't have good work-life balance which all those things are true but there might also be more subtle things like hormetic uh, hormetic epigenetic signaling compounds that we get from eating more plant foods for example and that could be a really interesting aspect of some of the effects on those catabolic processes on a cellular level. So there's a lot going on in the complex of our diet and lifestyle that I think is underappreciated. And we're often looking at the things that are the, the switch that turns it on. The other thing that I, I sort of want to bring up is the, the glucose to ketone ratio, because I'm really not a big fan of glucose to ketone ratios. I, I think it's a very poor measure for for anything really because of course you know ketones have a, a raft of effects in the body many of which are incredibly beneficial but I think looking at transiently the ratio of ketone to glucose it is 
kind of nothing source. You know, there, there's not much that we can really derive from it, um, particularly when it comes to, say, cancer treatment or for improvements in, in neural health. I, I just don't think there's much there because it's really the the things we're doing are promoting those outcomes. The, the consequence of some of the things we're doing might be a shift in those ratios, but we also need to consider that if we have really high ketone levels to achieve certain glucose to ketone ratios, we might also be perhaps overfueling, or we might be, you know, in some cases overfasting. And if that's not ideal for us because our tendency is to undereat, then that's not going to be a good thing. Mm. And in, in terms of cancer treatment, I certainly don't think it's a good idea to have good good. I, I certainly don't think it's a good idea to have excessively high ketone levels either. Mm. Yeah, that, that's as I understand it as well. I think Dom was talking about it in the context of that reduced calorie state, as I understand. I mean, maybe I read the entire thing wrong, but that was how, how he was talking about it. And potentially maybe it's utilized in his research with the Navy SEALs and stuff in that, um, I don't know, in his research environment. Yeah. I think it would be more of an outcome than a target. Because let's face it, if you if you do a complete fast, let's say a complete fast for 72 hours you're probably going to have pretty high ketones anyway. And if you continue that fast, I think it was, um, I'll have to remember the paper where they they had people fasting for sort of 10 days at a time. Ketone levels get pretty freaking high because mm. obviously glucose is getting really low as well. Mm. Um, but for most of us, most of the time, I think we're, we're really looking at ketones as, ketones as being a top-up fuel because blood glucose is never really going to fall below what we consider an, a low normal level. So if we're looking at what we would consider to be total transient fuel availability in the blood at any given time, there is an amount that we require, and for some states and conditions at least, pushing that higher to try and get a particular marker is probably going to be detrimental. Mm. What do you think, Dan? Yeah, I was just going to say before, like you know, that, that, the whole ketone number area, just we just know nothing about it. Like even like what where these numbers come from as to what's good and what's bad, it's it's just completely in my views it's kind of made up almost like mm. you know this idea that people say you know zero point three oh you're in ketosis like well really am I like and this is <laughs> I mean we published a paper not long ago and and it, we had this problem in that like over time we had like it was like a very long um, ketogenic very low carb study and what happens is the carbohydrate would stay the exact same every day like it wouldn't change but ketone levels would come mm. down over time so i mean there were less than like 50 grams at the start so what you what if you're if that's your marker of what's good is ketones then you're going to have to keep dropping and do more and more restricted eating more and more fasting to try and get those levels up because eventually i mean me now i i find it really hard to produce ketones because i just think i kind of use them so readily and they're yeah, and they're so prevalent in the way I, I live is that like you just can't look at them as if you're pricking your finger and looking at them in as a marker all the time. I just think it's it's just going to be a slippery slope to excessive fasting, really low, really low carbohydrate availability, and um, and I don't really think it's that necessary because it's you get better and you do it more, you you use them better. So well, I mean, and and I don't disagree with any of that because as I you know I think we've talked in the past about how people chase numbers with ketones and it's not necessarily appropriate. It's not appropriate, really. It doesn't really tell you how we might use that as a fuel source. And I wonder whether the 
using a ratio and the one of the reasons why it was mentioned was because it is a short-term thing and yeah. maybe from that transient mm. short-term perspective that's probably where ketones might be a bit more effective so if you are going into a doing something like a fasting mimicking approach and you've got a five-day diet and you're pricking your your finger to see the level of ketones that might be more informative for that short-term period rather than i'm yeah. embarking on this ketogenic lifestyle i'm gonna you know continuously yeah, exactly. take my ketones and you have to yeah. be continuously in ketosis and, and i think that's um you know with with the with my, with my course it's designed for more athletes and long i'm athletes who are looking to doing like more of a low carb lifestyle you know when we when we try and push them to upregulate the fat station with what's like more of a ketogenic phase it's only a short phase mm. you know encourage them to use ketones just to just to take a look at how they're making that transition because for many of them they wouldn't have even seen it, you know, they might have had this who are fueling for, you know, who are going around on every ride and doing 60 grams of carbs for every single training session and fueling all the time. And you, just, you just don't have that machinery to deal with it. So it's important that you actually see that transition at the start, at least. Mm, for sure. Um, so on that and on ketones, carbohydrate and looking at numbers and stuff, Dan, are, you're still measuring your, your glucose via the glucose continuous glucose monitoring system super sapiens is it yeah so the, so the the device is abbott abbott libra yeah continuous blood glucose monitor but the app that um analyzes it that it feeds into is super sapiens yeah and yeah. so super sapiens there's there's a few different apps out there that do this as like levels and i think there's some other ones but um super sapiens is specifically designed for um, athletes mm. like, and specifically yeah for more uh, specifically specifically endurance athletes i guess more than anything um yeah so that's um i've been i've had that in i've so they, each one lasts about two weeks mm -hmm. and um, this is my second second run with it so i put this in just before i started doing my um 800 calories per day for three days just just because i was kind of interested to see what would happen with that yeah any surprises yeah. like so for example i did ask whether or not you felt amazing because of the stress hormones but if you could look at your glucose, that might tell you a little bit about the levels of stress and stuff that your body might have been under. Did you notice anything yeah. over that? Uh... So, so during that, it's what's been quite more amazing is uh, during that period, I was actually, so I measured my, during that period, I did measure my glucose and I did measure my, my ketones and my ketones didn't really go up that much. Anyway, mm. I, I don't, that really. Um, and my glucose was a lot more stable. So it was always in like between four and five. Um, whereas when I did the Dr. Volta Longo one, it was like 2.6. I measured it once at 2.6. Mate. Um, so it was like super low. I know, you know, if you, if you go to hospital with a blood glucose at that level, you'll be straight on a, on a drip and <laughs> they'll be sawing you out. Yeah. But um, so, so this time I was pretty, pretty flat. But what's been more remarkable is that um, in the, since I've come out of it and I finished it on Friday, um, this last week, I've just my blood glucose has been so much less varied and a little bit lower. I mean, I was, I'm never that high, but it has been that little bit lower throughout the day. Mm. And that's one of the things that they reckon is really good for this um, with this 800 calorie type of diet is it does make you a little bit more insulin sensitive. Interesting. So, um, so I've have I have hey, definitely so noticed Dan, that. Yeah, that that's interesting to me because I've been thinking a lot recently about this. You know, this idea of benevolent uh, or transient benevolent pseudo-diabetes that we discuss quite a lot now. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So with, yeah, I do. So yeah, for people yeah. listening, the, 
the idea is that when we're on a low carb or keto diet for a period of time, or even severely calorie restricted for time, if we then have a large load of carbohydrates, so that would typically be in a glucose tolerance test, or if we just go out and you know have a big cheat meal or something, we're going to elicit a state of what looks like diabetes because we've actually downregulated our insulin sensitivity in order to preserve glucose for the central nervous system. And it's, you know, it's a very well-known thing now. We, we see it a lot in the research and we've sort of seen it ourselves, I think, in a lot of our um, clinical work. But I had a thought that where people are maybe cycling higher carb days, lower carb days, I wonder if people would sort of get used to that. And particularly so if people are very well fat adapted, very keto adapted, you know, sort of long term fat adapted type stuff. I, I really wondered if that was going to mitigate some of that effect. So I'm interested to see when you started eating a bit more again, did you have any higher carb meals where you maybe could have seen some big fluctuations in glucose? Yeah, so so that um, that night I had, um, for me, it was quite high carb. I had like some Kumara potatoes and, and whatnot. So I actually purposely tried to have a bit of a refeed and you, you honestly devil. there was see for me it would have been yeah yeah exactly absolute deviant but yeah it was nothing <laughs> no, no major shift yeah and if anything it's gone a little bit lower for the positively so um but what i've also found the cgm really useful for particularly for like endurance training is kind of titrating your kind of that level two zone that endurance zone as well so like you know if i'm if i'm if I get it right, I, if I'm right at the top of my level two zone, I'll expect, I can generally see a very gradual decline in my blood glucose. But as soon as I go over it, then I'll start, glucose will start coming up a little bit. So, you know, it's kind of a good, it's quite good to kind of know where that real level two zone is in, in real time and kind of titrate that a little bit. So um, when you say that, Dan, do you mean that you're going along at zone two fairly consistently, but then the intensity ramps up so you can actually see that your liver's like going, oh, shite, got to get more glucose into the bloodstream. And is that what you're seeing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if I say I'm like, I'm going on at like 260 watts, for example, on my bike, I'll just be pretty stable with my blood glucose. But then I suddenly I'll go, like, I'll do a few minutes at like 360 or 370, then it'll just go... <laughs> straight through you know straight up and you can even see it start to creep up if i even went to 300 you can just see a little bit of a of a of an increase as well but even like um if you're doing the same you can you can kind of almost measure your durability as well because if i hold the same power for a long period of time and it's quite hard towards the end of the workout often i can see it popping up a little bit because i'm because it's getting that little bit harder for me so i'm having to kind of just um, work that little bit harder to achieve the same output yeah so and so that then for makes me think, because, you know, you're a guy, you, you, you do a lot of measuring of, you know, and you're pretty intuitive really with your zones. Your, your training age is, you know, pretty high. And I'm not just saying that you're old. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. But it's giving you more. I've been doing it since I was nine. <laughs> yeah, 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 there you go, mate. Um, twilight yeah, years. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so it's actually giving you more insight that's able to contribute to your learning about yourself then. Like, so, so, this, so you're not looking at that and going, yeah, I kind of knew that that would happen. Are you actually going, yeah, yeah. oh, interesting. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you can even, uh, I mean, one, we're looking at doing some research in the, this area. And I was just writing some proposals for a few master students at, today because I'm just really interested in one is can we actually use this to prescribe exercise intensity and have a better understanding of where the thresholds are without having to go to the lab so people can do it at home. 
And then the other is, can we actually use it to see if we're improving our substrate metabolism? So for example, if I do an hour at 280 watts and I'm getting a, a small decrease in my blood glucose and I do a bit of training and like four weeks later, I do it again, but my blood glucose is really stable, then that's a positive adaptation because I can assume that my fat max has moved yeah. or my maximal fat oxidation has increased. I would assume my fat max has moved and that's a positive adaptation. And there's also, there's other things like you could even use it for, you can get it real-time fueling as well. Even you could potentially see if you're doing a race and you can, or some training where you want to actually keep your glucose topped up and you're seeing some kind of dip, you could look, say, oh, maybe I'm going to have a bit of fuel here or you, know, you could use it any way you want. You can use it for, there's so many implications and so many great ways that you could use the data to, to help. And I mean, you, and we're not even touching on the health side of things. Mm. Um, so I've, I've got a couple yeah. of questions, yeah. Dan. Have you, Cliff, ever used a CGM? No, I haven't, never. I'm, I'd love to get one, mm. though, um, because I think it's fascinating. And there's sort of two, two things I wanted to throw back at Dan. One is that, can the inverse be true? Because I, I remember doing some field work with Joe McQuillan uh, back in, man, it must have been 20 years ago. And we were measuring uh, blood glucose and lactate of 24-hour mountain bike riders every time they came back into pit. And we, we would basically see that once they were starting to get to a point of glycogen depletion, there'd be a, a big rise in blood glucose. And so we, we assumed that that was from a liver glycogen dump. So would that also be a potential there, is that when we see a spike in blood glucose, that there's potentially a liver glycogen dump and they, the athlete actually needs more fuel at that point? Yeah, well, that goes on to my point of um, what I talked about just a moment about was, was kind of assessing like durability of an athlete is that, you know, you can have two athletes and their, their, their lactate level or their lactate threshold, right, could be at 260 watts. But one athlete could have great durability and it'll be a very, very long time before they eventually would see that increase in blood yeah. glucose. Um, whereas a person who's not got that good a, good a durability, would, that would likely happen much sooner. And it's the same, like, you know, you can talk with it with the power to heart rate ratios, because at the same time, you'll probably see heart rate pop up as well. Um, so even like over the course of an Ironman run, for example, it's generally what you'll see is people will flat, the, the heart rate will just um, be quite steady. And then suddenly, like, you know, 10K from the end, it will just start going eh, and their pace hasn't changed. But um, it's just that, that there's so many things going on. There's obviously there's economy, there's, um, you know, just the tendon stiffness and all those things. But also there is a little bit that you'll have a dump of blood glucose and, and even maximal heart rate can come down. Therefore, your um, threshold heart rate shifted down that little bit and suddenly you've gone over your threshold, which means you're getting a bit of VO2 slow component rise and all those sorts of things. Are all, they're all affecting, but I think the blood glucose and continuously monitoring it is another another little tool in the toolbox yeah. to take a look at it so are you saying dan that if i had a cgm and i went out for a run and i could real time see what my glucose was doing if it was normal and stayed within normal the entire time then that would suggest that and i'm feeling fine then that would suggest that fueling was like not an issue for me on that run and it's only when it drops down or i get this massive rise that that's when i need to start thinking about that it yeah, it would be suggested that your fat oxidation is you're you're pretty much fueling predominantly from fat at that at that point. Yeah, exactly. Hey, yeah. Hey, so um, you guys will remember that paper that was published by ZV and colleagues a few years back, and they were looking at basically the 
2015. That'll be it. And they were looking at the blood glucose responses to different foods, and they were really different across people. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering... The banana again, and the cookies. Yeah. Have you seen... Yeah, well, or some people with, you know, massive blood glucose responses to white fish or something, and others not, you know. Have you noticed foods that you that, that, that you don't respond so well to? Honestly, honestly, the how long we got? Sit down. I've got, I've got this. This can go on for a while. Um, so there's a there's a few really interesting things. Is one is um, one is I've noticed things that can really help, like things I can do before that can stop any glu- like blood glucose rise. Um, and there's also foods that definitely don't I don't really agree with. So like fruit generally is not that great for me. Even post exercise, it's not really that that great. Um, but if I, I found if I add a bit of peanut butter to it, it's generally not as bad, but it's still not always that great. Um, but I've also noticed that typically after exercise, there's always this idea that, you know, you should eat straight after exercise because the GLUT4 transporters are open and you can bring the fuel straight into the muscle cell. What I generally find is that after I finish exercise, I will immediately get a little bit of a spike in blood glucose anyway, hmm. um, which is pretty, which is pretty, pretty normal um, as you kind of re, 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 re um, reset yourself but i find that if i eat on then that's worse so it's best that i just wait wait a little bit longer like wait about 30 minutes or so and then i'll have some food rather than just rushing straight to the fridge and eating eating immediately um but also one thing that i found that surprised me was chicken um chicken was not that great particularly chicken breast um chicken leg a little bit better but um chicken wasn't that great and also i um you know the paleo bread Mm. No, terrible. Oh yeah. 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 But it's not that it's not that much carb in there, but really bad. So um Well, it is tapioca flour, like it's like uh, so it's not necessarily that low carb, right, like yeah. you know, I, I think the difference might be 5 5 or 4 or 5 grams if we're looking at per slice yeah. compared to say your normal bread. So, so yeah, that was but the, but then but then having like more of the hemp, you know, the hemp bread that's more keto or absolutely fine. Yeah. And I will say that even though I'm biased, like S fuels, you know, S fuels, it does say the SF stands for spike free. If I have an S fuels bar, you wouldn't even know I've eaten it. Wow. It's completely flat. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not, I know I might be biased, but it's, it's, it is outstanding. Like there's not a, you, 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 often you can't even know I've eaten it. So, okay. It's crazy. So, what about you, Ken? What do you reckon? Well, I haven't tested that with this yet. Yeah, that, so, I think um, that would be interesting just because, yeah. the, like, to be honest, I love the UCAN bars. And um, mm. so we had them on our trail run um, the other yeah, right. uh, Sunday. Yeah. We did the black trail around Redwoods. And, and I looked at the back of it because um, they're super easy to eat. And they do have the super starch in them. But they actually have dates as well, so the amount of super starch isn't actually as high. Like you, when you look at the carbohydrate content, it might only be half of that carbohydrate content, which I found sort of interesting. Right. right. Maybe I'll order some from you then, Cliff, and then um, we'll give it a try, and I'll I'll report back. That'd be interesting. Hey, give it a crack. Yeah. Oh, no, I just think it's an interesting area because there, there's again a lot of complexity within it because where we're looking at something like that ZV study, where you're seeing what would be considered anomalous results and they're not consistent in any way across people. Obviously some of the food categories were very consistent and others were very inconsistent. That's I think more indicative than what a lot of people are doing with continuous glucose monitoring at the moment, which is just looking at whether they get a rise and that being arbitrarily bad. Mm. 
you know, I saw a Twitter post by um, somebody saying, you know, oats oats are bad for you because I'm wearing a continuous glucose monitor and my glucose spiked to whatever it was, eight or nine or something. Mm. So I went and read the blog post where they had outlined what they were doing. And within like an hour, they were back to about 4.5 millimoles. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah, it, Like all that shows us is that the person's eaten a bunch of carbs and, and disposed them. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. Because it, it's not, it's, it doesn't matter too much if, it, if it's getting high. It matters how long it's staying high for. Because if it's going up and then coming back down, you, you're, generally, you're generally pretty sweet. And just on that same, that same point is that, you know, there are, if, the, if that is the case, if high blood glucose is a problem, then so is sauna. Sauna's not good for you. We can stop doing any high intensity interval training because that's going to get your blood glucose up. You know, there's even like coffee can have a bit of a marked increase in your blood glucose and that's been proven to be nothing but good for you. Mm. So there's, there's um, you know, there is a bit of a, we need a, we mm. need a way to look at the things that we do that will spike your blood glucose, but chronically improve your overall health and um sensitivity and then there are other things that would not yeah go on mickey you you can you you may go (laughs) thanks so a couple of thoughts right so i think you're right that it doesn't necessarily matter how high it goes if within a couple of hours it's down to normal but you do want to watch that rebound effect right and for some people the rebound of having a having something like oats like if it goes up to 8.5 two hours later it's normal but maybe two and a half three hours later they're down at 2.5 like I think that that's one thing to to kind of think about and also of course though if that was the case and I've noticed this in myself um is that if I add chia seeds psyllium husk protein powder and peanut butter to my oats I'm actually sweet but if I just had and it's the addition of fat for me to oats which makes a difference because if I just added protein powder to my oats I am hungry again within like an hour so and I get that I'm quite reactive like I'm like oh I really need something to eat I I guess that's something to be to be mindful of interesting do you think that's compounded a compounded insulin effect Mickey don't know I don't know I think just just the buffering of something it's just slowing it down and it's staying in my system I don't know maybe I'm not smart enough to know that stuff um but the other thing is is with what you you're right Dan like sauna coffee these all have really um these are really beneficial from a health perspective because they work on multiple mm, pathways mm. right and it's not just that blood glucose response and I think that's that real that's that real myopic approach that people can take to nutrition like carbs are bad because they raise yeah, your exactly. glucose without thinking yeah. yeah the the effect of sauna on mm. my blood glucose I, i'm actually in a sauna right yeah, now. Yeah, 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 yeah. no the the yeah uh, well we're actually have funnily enough we're having one we're we're, we're gonna so we're gonna get office. one built here stop it because, because it's gonna be we're just i'm just well into it so anyway, but we digress. Um, and a proper Swedish one, none of this infrared crap. Um, so anyway, Good on you. Um, but yeah, it's um, honestly, my blood glucose goes so high, like, like I'm doing a high intensity interval almost. It's absolutely nuts. And that's got to be, yeah, that's got to be of benefit. Um, yeah, but just to finish up on the subject, two other things that I notice really will stabilize my blood glucose. One is like cold water immersion, a cold shower. So the other, the other day I went in the sea and then I came home, had a cold shower. Then I had my dinner. It was n- nothing almost. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. And um, apple cider vinegar. 
Yes, Cliff and I have often been in presentations where one or the other of us have said, have apple cider vinegar before a meal to help lower yeah. blood glucose response. Yeah, I think I think you've told. I think you were the first person who ever told me that, Mickey. Yeah, Probably, so. I am. Yeah, pro- a brainiac. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so there we go. But, that, but yeah, I continue to um, experiment with it, and uh, yeah, I'm doing some work with Super Sapiens. Hopefully, in the future, and we're gonna. You know, just making, you know, the apps, are, it's already, they're already a great company doing great things and um, looking to, you know, get a bit more out of it specifically for, for athletes who can use it to race and train. I think because I think the, the efficacy of it is, is through the roof. Mm, I have a, um, a Libra um, on order, I think, actually from Metaray. Yeah. So, sure. so that just means I have to download that Super Sapiens app, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think you can get it in New Zealand yet. Oh, but, um, don't worry. I think you've got, you'll have some contacts who could get you maybe on the test flight. Oh, fantastic. So I've got a couple of questions. We've talked about what coffee does to your blood sugar. Dan, the chicken thing, there wasn't any kind of dressing on that chicken. It was just the insulinogenic. What, what is that? What, what's going to impact on your blood sugar from something like the chicken? Yeah, it's a good question because like you, you know, I know I heard some, I was listening to a podcast and this person was saying that he found like green beans made mm. him really like shoot up in. So there may be just some foods that just aren't that great. And maybe it's the fact that it's high protein and not and zero fat pretty much. That's the, you know, so it's changing, changing that glycemic load and maybe that, that could be it. Are um, you allergic? Like any kind of immune response or something? Cliff, yeah. would that make a difference to your sugar response? It could do. I, I think it's just so hypothetical at the moment because it's so very difficult to to tease out mm. subclinical intolerance mm. and allergy. And, you know, I, I think that's that's what's really fascinating about that research on differential responses to foods um, because it, it doesn't... It doesn't make intuitive sense and it like for example it may not be if someone's having a, a really high blood glucose response to say white fish but not to chicken breast or the other way around what's mm. going on there because they have, mm. especially if they're you know amino acid equivalent there's not that much difference in terms of the macronutrient profile of them so mm. i think there's a lot that we don't understand there the the interesting functional outcome of that zv study to go back to that was that they did then follow it up, obviously, with the second part of the study, which was to give people foods that were the, the best for them in terms of blood glucose response, and it, it gave very favorable outcomes. So, yeah, we, I guess that the answer is we don't know, but it begs for further research. Sure. So I think Dan can do some more research in that space. Yeah, well, I'll try, you know what? I haven't eaten that much. I've only noticed it like a couple of times, but... So maybe I'll just chow down and I'll do lots of different chicken experiments. <laughs> don't, don't, just don't, don't tell the vegans they won't like me for that. But um, they don't like you anyway, chicken. mate. Don't worry. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a good valid point. <laughs> but one thing, um, one thing that I will also say on that is I also noticed that, you know, the, the responses to the same food on, at different times of the day and different circumstances is... You know, it's just massive. So, mm. you know, and that, that's one of the with, the, with that, with the study that you're referring to, the, the banana versus cookies, you know, they, they have to be so tightly regulated in the timing of what you're giving them, what they've just done before, yeah. what they ate the night before, how, you know, there's so many different factors that, that are going to affect that, right? So, um, which is why, you know, like intermittent fasting works is because when you haven't eaten for a while, 
you are way more receptive to taking on food. You have less of an insulin response. Therefore, your blood, your blood glucose does not rise as high. So there's so many little factors to really, to really get a good understanding of what's going on. You have to tightly control, control those things. Mm. Read wine, Dan. Any um, idea? No, no, I don't think I haven't. I have had some red wine. It doesn't doesn't do much. No. Mm. Well, that's a, One that's thing good that gets news. me is my uh, my kids. They they have like these. Um, these little, they're called the puffs. They like got a little teddy bear on the front, but they're like, um, they've got pea, um, pea, the pea kind of, oh, the pea yeah. flower in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Man, they taste so good, but they also have a remarked effect. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, can't help it when, when they, yeah, but yeah, that's one thing, as you would expect. But, but do you know what? I'm willing to take the hit because they are so good. You know what? Just do a 15 minute walk afterwards. Maybe that'll yeah. change. Yeah, is it for sure? Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to having a to having a play around with it. The one thing I'm a little bit concerned about is what my blood sugar response will be to fruit. As you've mm. said, Dan, I've been into the fruit of late. Um, craft yeah. beer, like I'm a little yeah. bit scared of that. Um, yeah. because knowledge is power, and once you know, you can't unknow. Um. But timing is everything. You know, you'll if you find something's bad at a certain well, point, all, you can. All just... ignorance is bliss. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. You can just time it. You know, straight in the middle of a bike ride, or straight after, not too long after a bike ride, and 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 you'll and you'll be your. You know, actually, sorry, a run. You don't bike ride. No. So um. <laughs> so yeah, you, you'll be you'll be absolutely fine. You'll be away. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, just to finish up on this conversation, anything new? Anything exciting? Anything we need to know about? Obviously, Dan, you've got your Endura IQ. Um, your squad has has started up. I think that you should tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, for sure. So um, have the so Endure IQ. It's basically it's got two parts to it. The first part is online courses, specifically for long distance triathlon. So we've got one on low carb nutrition that Mickey is a star in, um, and then we've got one on training. We've got one on the heat, um, exercising in the heat, and now nice. we're just building one on the middle middle of building the fourth course, which is on athlete monitoring. Um, which is a bit of a beast, but it's good fun to put that together. And then, and then the other side, we have our coaches, one-on-one coaching for long-distance triathlon specifically. But then we have our Endure IQ training squad, which is kind of it's more of a um, a, a group where we put up rolling plans, and there's it's just a, a platform where you can a platform where you can do training. You can scale. It's got thousands of different, um, well, not sorry, hundreds of different training plans, hundreds of different, different workouts that are all scalable. So you can move things around in your week, make things fit you, um, and all the sessions are scalable. So if you've only got 30 minutes, you can make it 30 minutes. If you've only got an hour, you can make it an hour. And, um, and yeah, and that's on, on endureiq.com. That's awesome, Dan. And Cliff, you've got a few new things coming up at Holistic Performance Institute. Do you want to give us a, a wee rundown on that? Yeah, well, I think at the moment, Mickey, we're all about you. The, um, the latest release we have is your uh, nutrition for women's health module or or course and uh, that's going great guns we're getting lots of really good feedback on that and uh, lots of sign-ups so that's really our focus for the next little while Uh, outside of that we obviously have our marquee courses uh, HPN1 which have two tracks one of which people can become a you know fully qualified nutrition and health coach the other one they can become an accredited sports nutritionist with the sports nutrition association um, and those both lead on to HPN2, which allows people to be registered clinical nutritionists here in New Zealand. 
that's awesome and um, guys I'd like to thank you for taking time out of your Thursday afternoon you know it's like pre-dinner drinks schedule to come on have a convo it's kind of like I was just sitting down having a conversation with you guys the way we would always would but just happened to record it which um, then means it's just beneficial for everyone else who always wished that they could have like a, a wee beer fly on the wall of these types of conversations I wish next time I'm bringing my own beer though because Cliff didn't, <laughs> Cliff didn't he didn't. no he didn't no he didn't even so I have to bring well, it was, my own obviously it was going to be in person but <laughs> alright team have a great night cool thank you So team, hope you enjoyed that conversation. I've got to say, I always learn so much from those guys and it's really just so cool that I get to have these conversations, soak up all of that information and learning, but then also put it out there to you guys so you also get the benefit of connecting with brains like Dan and Cliff. So you can catch Cliff at cliffharvey.com or over on Instagram at cliffydog. Or Dan at EnduraIQ.com or over on Instagram, he's pretty active really, at The Plues. Next week on the show, I am stoked to chat to Mel Law, who is the founder of Wild Things, all about building community through running. And it's a fun conversation, whether or not you're a runner or otherwise. Mel is such a great guy. So until then, team, you can find me over on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin, where I share research things which I've come across, what's literally what I do almost every day, have heaps of conversations over there, uh, or over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, or jump over to my website, mickeywillardin.com, sign up to one of the free courses there, and then you'll get access to my weekly emails, where Again, I just share with you the things that I'm reading and thinking about on a weekly basis. You can also sign up to one of my meal plans, be it a longevity approach to diet, just a uh, good real food approach to, to nutrition, or some fat loss through my woman and male specific fat loss plans in their eight weeks. Uh, Monday's Matter is over halfway through now and we're getting great traction so don't worry if you missed out on that. We are going to launch another one in spring so really looking forward to just continuing this journey with people that are on that course. And of course if you're looking for individualized approach to diet book a consultation with me over on my website mickeywillardin.com. All right, team, until next week, have a fab week. See you later.